We'd like to begin this episode by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land that we record our interviews on. Dermot and I are on Gadigal, Gundungurra and Tharawal country. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging. We recognise their continuing connection to the land and waters and thank them for protecting our coastline and ecosystems. We also extend that respect to all First Nations people listening to this episode. Welcome to the third episode of the Spring Series of Goodwill Hunters, which asks, can Australia be a sustainability superpower? I'm your host, Dermot O'Gorman, CEO of WWF Australia, and I'll be joined by my co-host, Rachel Mason-Nunn, founder of Goodwill Hunters. WWF is proud to be presenting this series in partnership with Goodwill Hunters in the lead up to the UN's Climate Change Conference kicking off in late October. In this third episode, we look at cities, the urban cities that so many of us live and work in, and we consider what it takes to create a sustainable city. Rachel and I will speak to two leading experts. The first, Lucy Turnbull is the former Chief Commissioner of the Greater Sydney Commission, as well as the first female Lord Mayor of Sydney and the former Chair of the Committee of Sydney. The second is Richard Moore, former Deputy Director General of AusAid and the former Alternative Executive Director on the board of the Asian Development Bank. If ever there were two people can help navigate the policy complexity of a COVID pandemic, infrastructure, climate change, and people-centered solution. It's Lucy and Richard in this episode. Enjoy the listening and join the conversation online at Goodwill Pod and through the hashtag Regenerate Australia. As world leaders prepare to gather in Glasgow for the 2021 United Nations Climate Change Conference, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change has sent out a dire warning we've caused permanent damage to the Earth's climate. Without significant changes, the average global temperature is very likely to rise to 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels by 2040. The experts are clear. World leaders must commit to an ambitious reform agenda to stop adding carbon dioxide to the atmosphere. But what do those changes look like? What does all this mean for the most vulnerable communities? And what is Australia's role in climate leadership? My name is Rachel Mason-Nunn, founder and executive producer of Goodwill Hunters. This series is brought to you by the Worldwide Fund for Nature, Australia's most trusted conservation organisation. Through its Regenerate Australia campaign, WWF is calling on Australian leaders to make Australia the world's leading exporter of renewable energy by 2030. Thank you for joining us for this crucial conversation. We invite you to contribute to the conversation online at Goodwill Pod and WWF Australia and hashtag Regenerate Australia. Richard and Lucy, thanks for joining us on the show. Lucy, I'll start with a question for you. COVID-19 has obviously been front of mind for all of us for the last two years. And a lot of questions have been raised about the intersection between cities and COVID-19. Can I start by asking you, how did mass urbanisation contribute to the both the inception and the spread of COVID-19? Well, cities are, the, the, the city, viruses like tra- easy transmission. And so they like people being close together 
in whether it was an original um, Wuhan uh, wet fish market or whether it's in a, a workplace or whether it's in a household. They like people being close together. And as a general rule, people in cities are closer together. So it's nothing intrinsic about the cities per se. It's the fact that that's where people gather more often, more densely, more frequently, and in larger groups in 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 inside inside in inside interior spaces. So it's a natural site for the transmission of the virus. Cities are where people live, um, and urbanization is all about. Uh, you know, I guess since the since the late eighteenth century, it's been all about in the developed world and in the developing world too. In more recent decades, it's all about people moving to cities as the economy urbanises because that's where jobs and opportunities are and so more people are going to be impacted. And I might say that in Australia we have we are one of the most heavily urbanised uh, countries in the world. So uh, we are, you know, we are an urbanised nation. But here's, here's an important factor, I think, is that it's not just cities as a monolithic entity what this has what this pandemic has shown up is that really nothing has changed very much from the days of the black death in the medieval times in europe there is a heavy concentration of the burden of this disease in lower socioeconomic uh i guess precincts and neighborhoods and and areas and parts of cities because you know people who have uh, who who live more closely together? The denser, the, the more densely they live, and the larger their household size, and the more they have to do essential work, like you know, pa- packing supermarket bags, you know, delivering stuff, packing packing things at Amazon or wherever, whatever they're doing, the more risk they pose to themselves, they put themselves at more risk of of getting and spreading disease. So, you know, there's this huge rift between how. Uh, better off people who can live their lives on Zoom are faring compared to people who simply cannot because they're essential workers. It's an important distinction to make. And as you say there, Australia has some of the most urbanised cities on earth, but as does Asia. And and Richard, I know that you're based in Manila. How have you seen this um, urbanisation and the spread of COVID manifest where you are and throughout Asia? You know, hopefully Australia is near the end uh, sorry, is getting to the end phase, hopefully. Um, and hopefully that will allow us to have a look at what else is happening around us. And it's not a pretty picture. You know, in Indonesia, uh, they've had 120,000 deaths. That's 100 times ours, more. Um, in PNG, vaccination rates are under a 1%, and that's going to be an extraordinary challenge. Um, so whilst, uh, you know, whilst we're doing quite a bit, um, we're going to need to do more because if we don't, we're going to have these big reservoirs of disease that are going to incubate new strains. And if we're unlucky, we're going to get one come back and undo a lot of, a lot of the good that's been done. So we really have to turn our attention pretty quickly to what's happening elsewhere. Um, as Lucy has said, um, we, we, we can't be 100% sure about how COVID um, originally spread, about its origins. Still a bit of a debate about that. What we do know, though, is that uh, East Asia is a hotspot for emerging infectious diseases. Um, and there are, there are big drivers of this. Uh, we're seeing uh, forests being cleared. 
um, that's pushing wildlife and people into closer proximity. We're seeing people displaced from peri-urban areas and they're pushing into areas of biodiversity. Um, and we're seeing a big shift in Asia to Western diets that's leading to large-scale land clearance, which again, all of these things are intersecting in ways which uh, are raising the potential for emerging infectious diseases. Coronavirus is sure, but, but swine flu and avian flu as well. Um, so there's a, there's a big problem uh, for us here. As Lucy has said, it, 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 cities are not the problem per se. It's the inequality uh, in, in, in the way services uh, are, are, are delivered. You know, 150 years ago, Dickens wrote about cities and, and uh, their good points and their bad points. He talked about, you know, London being um, a magic lantern. And there's, there's something in that. Cities have a sparkle about them. Uh, but he also drew attention to inequality and injustice. And he pointed to the appalling living conditions that people had to endure. And as a result of that, there was a really big change in sentiment. Social movements began and we saw the creation of public institutions to improve health and education. And a lot of that uh, sat with the UK and then was transferred elsewhere uh, and, 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 and really served them very well for a very long time. I'd have to say, in my view, unfortunately, the last 25 years, instead of being involved in a great um, project of public sector uh, uh, institution building, we've, we've actually done the opposite. Um, and we're paying the consequences and we need to recognise that and get back on a more sustainable track. I'm keen to sort of build on that theme of um, inequity and um, that contrasting experience in cities between not only are cities within the same country experiencing different COVID differently, but then different cities around the world. Uh, some are doing better, some are doing worse. And so if we, there's been quite a bit written about um you know, the environmental benefits and the climate change benefits that have happened during um, COVID in, in cities. Um, can, can you give me your thoughts, Lucy, to start with? On what do you, what have we learned from this pandemic that helps us start to address what is arguably a bigger, longer-term challenge um, over this next century of, um, you know, powering uh, the world with renewable energy and starting to build re a resilience to the, the changes to climate change that are already happening this decade? Yeah. Well, what we've learned is that um, in places where people can work from home, like I guess more affluent suburbs and parts of cities, working from home, people are working from home. And so they don't have to be part of the traffic problem. So they're not driving, they're not, you know, adding to fuel emissions, et cetera. So we need to figure out how to create a society which is not so spacious, spatially divided. I mean, people are walking like they never have before. That quality of walkability needs to be built in right across metropolitan areas, no matter what the socioeconomic profile of the, of the population is. So that principle of walkability and open space is fundamental for physical and mental health during a pandemic, but also to help to address the inequity between, you know, some parts of cities and others. And, you know, I, I sort of many, 20 years ago, published a book called A Biography of Sydney. What's quite clear is that the natural 
topography of Sydney, you know, particularly these areas around Bankstown and, um, you know, Auburn, et cetera, they have the most beautiful um, network of rivers and water systems, which are usually, which are most typically kind of, you know, used as the back of buildings or disused rubbish dumps and the quality of them is not good. These rivers and waterways and the, and the landscape around them need to be revived so that they can become like the fingers of, if you like, the fingers of livability that will make the place better so people don't feel, relatively speaking, disadvantaged in terms of open space compared to the eastern city. And it's that redressing inequity in a metropolitan region which I think has actually come home to us as being a critical task to address a sense of us and them. Essentially, an awful lot of what Lucy said is is equally true here where I am in Manila, but, you know, in different ways, but but the, but I certainly relate to 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 what Lucy's been saying. I think it's interesting that the the COVID is putting pressure on 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 the city of Manila in ways that intersect with other pressures, including and especially climate change, um, and so it can it can actually have a catalytic effect. Um, uh, so, I mean, one of the one of the first things I noticed here was that, of course, um, in order to prevent the spread of the disease, the public transport system essentially was closed. Um, and then people had the problem of how on earth do they get around where there's there's no there's no trains uh, or buses or jeepneys. And for the first time ever, uh, bicycles started appearing en masse on Manila streets. Now, this has always been a city where, you know, you've it really, it, it really didn't used to have motorbikes, let alone bicycles. Now, bicycles have, have sprouted, and some smart people have taken advantage of this. They've used the lull in the traffic to put in bike lanes. Now, I would never have expected on EDSA, the main thoroughfare, to see bike lanes. Well, they're there. So, you know, you can, if, if you're clever, you can, you can, you can take advantage um, of, of adversity. But, of course, one of, the, one of the other really big things that we, we, we're lagging on is is great public transport and so we need to keep on rolling out new investments new plans to allow people to move around in ways that are safe uh, and and affordable yeah it's interesting and and as you're both speaking there it's evident that covid has shone a light on a lot of the issues that existed in cities prior to covid a lot of the challenges we're talking about, such as um, cities lacking in walkability, cities as engine of carbon emissions, um, urban sprawl and um, overcrowded areas, all of these issues existed pre-COVID and we've just felt the weight of them through COVID. So I think to ask a question about that then, COVID aside, which is a hard thing to do, but COVID aside for a second, how can we make cities more sustainable in general? I'll start with where I am because there's, you know, Manila is not the world's most beautiful city. And um, a lot of people react to that when they encounter it first. And it, but that can blind you to what is actually happening. And there's quite a lot of transformation which is surprising. Part of it's the scale of urban redevelopment, which has shocked me. Where I used to live up at the fort, um, there's a whole new district of dozens of blocks going up simultaneously. So, the, 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 you know, it, it's really mind-boggling how quick uh, th this is, is, is happening. Um, 
there have been several things that that have caused me, you know, to be much more optimistic than I used to be. When I when I first lived here 15 years ago, uh, the air quality was so bad that you would encounter the smog on the plane a hundred kilometers away. And when you got and when I lived here, I had an office out in Ortigas. I maybe. A few times a year, I would see the hills in the background. I would see a faint outline of the hills, almost never blue sky. And now the sky is blue much of the year, apart from the rainy season. Now, something big has happened with air quality. I think in that period, it would be the total turnover of the belching buses and the, the, the car stock. And there's just a lot less emission coming out of, 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 of newer vehicles I suspect that's the biggest single change that's happened. This, you know, this talk about how we make the city uh, uh, you know, bring more vegetation back into the city. So lots of exciting things going on, actually. But one of them, which is perhaps the most impressive of all to me, is it's all very well to take your premier districts and spruce them up a bit more. Uh, that's not that's not so hard. But um, if you go to the back streets, um, nothing much was happening until. Really, the last five years or so, it predates the current government, but the current government has kept it going. We're seeing a, I'd say it's a revolution in backstreet infrastructure. Uh, small roads are being paved. Decent drainage is being put in. Pedestrian walkways for the first time. This is not old Manila as we used to know it. This is, this is something changing. I'm really glad to hear from Richard that that in in Manila they're getting to understand the the importance of grain and granularity in you know the back the back um, the back lanes and the back pathways and pedestrian links because a lot of cities and you can think of a lot of North American cities completely lost that and it was such a huge loss to community and there's nothing worse for sustainability and, and um, energy consumption than actually needing to get into a car to go anywhere. And, you know, we know, especially in places, I'm not sure what the petrol kind of fuel um, regulations are in Manila, but in places like Hanoi where you have a huge amount of, of leaded uh, fuel and diesel fuel, the air quality just absolutely sucks. And you know when you go there for a few days how bad it is, but when you live there, it's just monumentally bad. And I think... I think it really sort of adds to, you know, vulnerability to things like pandemics because these people are breathing in really bad air with a lot of PM 2.5 particulates every day. So naturally their their physical resilience to a disease that often attacks, primarily attacks your lungs, is going to be diminished. So we've got to understand that there's a an interrelationship between clean air and health generally and long-term health, but also between resistance or capacity to resist or manage the burden of diseases that come along, whether it's a regular seasonal flu or whether whether it's COVID. I think when we acknowledge that there are these dual goals of sustainability, but also improving health of the people in a city. And there's also throughout much of Asia and much of the world, a goal of poverty reduction and creating livelihoods. And I think there's this unfortunate misconception that you can't simultaneously pursue a sustainability agenda whilst trying to reduce endemic poverty. And I remember a few years ago working in Papua New Guinea and hearing a senior bureaucrat up there say to me, we can't pursue this sustainability program because we're just focused on livelihoods. We're just focused on bringing people out of poverty. 
I think that's so misconceived. I think, I think you know, with renewable energy, we know it's actually cheaper than, you know, non-renewable energy, than dirty energy. So there's not an inconsistency between reducing carbon foot, carbon footprints and energy consumption or, you know, like uh, fossil fuel emissions uh, generation and and having cheaper a cheaper, you know, source of energy. I mean, and this is where the whole model, the whole kind of, the conceptual the conceptualization of what we need to do and how we need to do it should change uh well yes i might flip it and say i've heard the contrary argument a lot the last few years from people in the west um sort of aghast at the notion that um particularly in developing asia uh we're going to have if we're lucky <laughs> uh and skilled a lot of growth in the next uh, 30, 40 years, um, and a lot of people coming into the Asian middle class that are going to want, surprisingly, uh, quite a bit of what we've got. And they're going to start with fridges and air conditioners and TVs and stuff. And this is going to lead to an enormous additional demand. And an awful lot of people in the West are saying, well, that just can't happen. Well, excuse me, uh, it, it, it will inevitably happen. Um, the, the, the trick is we've got to recognise that enormous shift and make it as climate friendly as possible. And of course, then we but we've we've got the big, big, big problem. 75 percent of emissions from power generation. We're going to want a whole lot more power. So we you know, we've really got to get on and make that power generation um, climate neutral. Yeah. And also electrify motor vehicles. With, with renewable energy. That's the other important thing. We've basically got to electrify the whole economy with renewable energy. Electrify everything, Lucy. Let me let me let me pick that up when it comes to Australian cities. And you know, you've talked about some of the um, transformation that's going on across Australian cities. And you know, you visit Melbourne, Sydney, Perth, Adelaide. There's a lot of urban transformation underway, and that applies equally to some of the smaller cities like Geelong or Cairns or Newcastle. Um, but is are Australian cities doing enough to, to really both seize and demonstrate that potential um, that cities are, can be engines of sustainability and do that in a, in a zero emissions way? Well, the the way that governance and government is constructed in um, in certainly in Australia, the state, the state governments have the primary uh, responsibility for energy and utility systems, right? So, so they will be they will be the people, and you know, the federal government too will be the government agencies that mandate, you know, um, certain amounts of you know renewable energy or reducing carbon emissions, or you know, sort of encouraging or you know, sort of. I guess alluring or you know sort of inducing uh, people to to create more renewable energy, which is happening. I like by in spades. What we've got to do is actually create the storage to to back up the renewables that can so easily be transmitted during daylight hours and windy periods. Um, so really, the task of doing that is really a state and federal government task because cities are just happen to be. Where people live, which is a, an important thing, but but the city, you know, the city as such doesn't have the you know the capacity to say, okay, we're going to have 
everything coming from renewables because of the way energy systems and power grids and governance is configured. So we need to actually get it done at a government level. But here's the trick. Here's here's the challenge. So, So we can have, in terms of our own energy system, a completely zero energy, zero carbon energy system. And I reckon we can do that a lot more quickly than people give us credit for. But we actually have, uh, this gets beyond cities, but we actually have an an export profile which is very similar to Saudi Saudi Arabia's because we are exporting gas and coal, they export oil and gas, but it's similar to the Middle East's export and scope three emissions profile. And we've got to actually come to terms with that and figure out how to become an exporter of renewals, of renewables, um, just as today we are a massive exporter of coal and gas. And if we don't, we can be as pure as we like in our own little kind of Swiss Australian village, which is a hard thing to get your head around. But still, if we, if our source of export revenue is coming from, you know, coal and gas, we will be, I think, reasonably seen as a bunch of, you know, pretty, you know, inconsistent people where we don't do as we say. Absolutely, certainly. And Richard, you're you're sitting in Asia, the other side where actually that market could well disappear into coal and gas over the next decade. And unless we transition to be a renewable energy superpower, you know, it's a new point whether we want to do it. No one will be buying a product. Any thoughts on that? Well, you know, I, I am puzzled and, and worried about our institutional response. I know it's devilishly difficult and it's, you know, um, but uh, I hark back to when we were hiding behind a very large tariff wall. And increasingly we realised that this was stifling us in numerous ways, but we had protected industries where a large number of people worked say, the clothing industry, footwear industry, large numbers of migrants and low-income workers, and they needed some protection. They didn't want the tariffs to come down, but we needed to move forward. And eventually, we solved that. We solved it through the, you, you know, industry restructuring plans. And in the car industry case, we bought ourselves a few more decades through the, the button plan, and essentially, there was a consensus that we would manage transition. And I just, I'm, I'm, I'm very saddened by the fact that we don't seem to have put the same sort of energy into a constructive approach that helps the communities and the individuals that are dependent on, on, on fossil fuels to transit so that they become partners in the process rather than opposed to it. It's, there's, something, there's something desperately wrong with our, with our, with our politics. Uh, and, and just as a segue sort of on to, because I imagine we might go on to this, I mean, I, 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 we, we're mad not to be using the most powerful instrument that we've got in a mixed market economy, and that is price, whether it's for uh, carbon or indeed for water. And I'm very worried about water shortages in the coming period, very, very worried in Asia. Um, we need to be pricing things to send the signals so that all of the actors can adjust. The water climate nexus is critical. It's why we did our last season of Goodwill Hunters on water um, and why this was such a logical follow-up on sustainability. But I, I think to that point of leadership, a big motivation in us wanting to do this series was that we're coming up to the next um, climate conference in Glasgow, kicking off at the end of October. And 
there's a lot of speculation and um, hopefulness, but um, also concern around what Australia's commitments will be at that conference. Um, But it does speak to a larger trend that there is around a $4.1 trillion gap in urban finance recognised by the city's Climate Finance Leadership Alliance. So a massive gap in the finance that's needed um, for our urban areas. Why do you think there is that gap, Lucy? Well, that's a, a huge amount of money. And 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 with this with this conversation comes, you know, who pays? Because even if it's not expensive to build a solar array, you know, on a piece of land, the value of which is not too high. And so that makes sense. You've still got to create the transmission lines and the sort of like the transmission and distribution infrastructure to support a renewable energy system, which isn't cheap. But if the if the benefit of that is you actually save the planet, I think you need to think of a different way of not just saying what will it cost, but you have to start start thinking about co-conceptualising what will it cost if we don't do anything? Like what will it cost if nobody changes the way infrastructure is planned and delivered and operated so that the planet dies? What is the cost of annihilation of the planet? And it's pretty high. So, you know, this traditional cost-benefit analysis, and I've seen more of it than I'd like to, to confess to of, you know, for infrastructure projects and, you know, generally speaking, it's very, very narrow and it doesn't often have the climate change uh, component in it and the cost of what if we don't do something in it. So, you know, thinking of water systems, you know, like sewerage systems, like as, as water, sea levels rise and especially in a, you know, water ring coastal cities, that creates a huge challenge for building urban infrastructure, drainage system, you know, water retention systems, et cetera, to support that. It isn't just a cost of XT billion dollars. It's actually what's the cost of everybody having to move from point A on the coast to 500 metres inland? Like what will that cost in relocating people, et cetera? So you need to have a a much more sophisticated understanding of the implications of inaction. And I don't think anyone's ever explained that very well. Yes, I think I very much agree with that. Uh, I think finance, you know, financial analysis that puts a big number on needs is, is, is useful to some extent, but we've got to be careful that we're not driven by that. There's, there's an immense number of needs, uh, not just in infrastructure, health, education, whatever. But in fact, at the end of the day, it's how you bring all of the actors together so they can play a part. So it's public sector, private sector, individuals, city government, national government. So there has to be a very clear sense of the system. And then you have to have that leadership uh, from the top, coordinating the whole thing, making a coherent whole, using the various mechanisms that we've got, pricing, subsidies, knowledge sharing. Multilaterals are often very good at this. The World Bank is, is very good at this. They can, they can do pilots and they can do technology transfer and roll out large programs. Lots we, lots we can do. Now, at the end of the day, though, I'd say, um, and Lucy may disagree with me on this one, but um, you know, it, I, I'm not in favour of uh, big government for big government's sake, nor uh, high taxes any, any higher than we need. But I think rather than discussions about taxation, for example, starting with lower is better, 
we need to reframe what sort of society do we want nationally and internationally? How do we bring it into being? What does it cost? And how can we manage those costs so they are as affordable as possible? And that may take you to a little bit higher than we're currently taxing ourselves in the Western world, we, especially after COVID, where the, the, the debt burden, I think, we're pretending doesn't exist at the moment. And I find it quite scary. Mm. Well, the other thing that preys on my mind is we actually don't have a lot of time. If there are disruptive things that are going to happen, like the collapse of glaciers, etc., we may not have another enough a lot of time. If we are going to have water shortages in five years, we don't have a lot of time. So this is the time imperative which drives us towards an understanding that we might have to incur costs more quickly than otherwise would be the case if we had 50 years. And I think we need to think about that. And, and that has to be messaged through strong leadership is that the implications of not addressing addressing coastal inundation again in a lot of South Asian cities and the, you know, the Ganges Delta, et cetera, I mean, if we don't address that, the cost to human beings is almost incalculable. So if they at the same time as they are facing dire water shortages are also being inundated by salt water, that is, that makes this COVID pandemic look very mild. Yes, and we, we haven't talked about the people movement consequences, which you've in a sense just highlighted. We are talking about massive conurbations of people potentially resulting in, in the displacement of tens of millions and managing that will be extraordinarily difficult. So, you know, being involved upfront in trying to resolve some of those issues uh, makes a great deal of sense, even if it's just in our national interest. Richard and Lucy, on, on this point, because that you raise about the type of impact and the consequences, what's the answer? Because are we just going to accept that there are some coastal areas or inland areas with drought that are not going to be uh, going to sustain our cities or even you know, towns in the same way they have? Um, and, you know, the, the type of weather we've seen this last couple of years, as that continues for the next decade, are we just going to have to say, sorry, you know, that we can't keep living in these same places in the same way? Well, the lead, the lead indicator is actually the insurance, the insurance sector. So, you know, insure, insurers are just simply, you know, they've got their own flood maps. I'm thinking of Sydney, the flood maps, et cetera, I've seen of Sydney. They've got their own flood maps. They're doing their own risk assessment. But what hasn't happened is that the, the, the deep understanding that they have of inundation risks, et cetera, and other climate risks um, aren't being embedded in the way, in, I don't think they're being properly embedded in the way we approach things. And I think I really think they need to be quickly. And I think if they're not being embedded in a developed country like Australia, then they're probably not being embedded in a lot of Asian countries either. Absolutely. And so herein lies a really big problem on top of on top of all the others we've got. Um, you know, we talk a lot, rightly, about the rules-based order. And um, I want to live in a rules-based region. But the problems we're confronting now require that order to be re-engineered so that we're dealing better with some of these big things that we're uh, facing now. Um, the machinery that we, we that was built post-Second World War has been excellent. 
but it's towards the end of its, its, its life. It needs serious renovation to deal with these problems, all of which means a country like Australia is able to uh, deal with this, is able to be inventive. We've, you know, we've, we've been creative internationally on many occasions, in, including in that early post-war period where successive liberal governments were actually very, very good about handling decolonization, reaching out to Asia, developing new international institutions. We need a period now of, of international activism and we need to build the machinery to deliver it. And we cur- currently, it's in disrepair. Mm. We're coming to the end of this fascinating conversation, uh, Lucy and Richard. In a few weeks, the governments of the world are meeting in Glasgow for the Climate COP. What, when it comes to sustainable cities, do you hope um, will come out of out of COP that will try and address some of the challenges that you've you've talked about? Well, my own wish is that you know uh, I know that cities create you know a huge proportion. There, there's an estimate that it creates forty percent. Cities uh, generate forty percent of um, emissions. I, I, forgive me, I'm not sure if that's in Australia or uh, globally. But the, one of the reasons they generate 40% of emissions is that they have a huge chunk of the population. So we can't just think of cities as bits of buildings and roads and stuff. It's actually where people are. And we need to, I think, some people kind of um, want to, kind, if you like, demonise cities because they have large levels of emissions. And the reason is that they have large levels of people. And, in fact, there's actually a really, uh, I think, well, certainly for me, a really good book that... Um, a man called David Owen wrote a few years ago called Green Metropolis. If you look at the energy consumption per person or per household, um, the energy consumption, say, in Manhattan per household is a lot lower in Manhattan than it is in sort of like rural Connecticut or up in New York State. And the reason is that nobody ever drives a car pretty much. They walk everywhere and they live in much more compact housing and they share walls with other people. So they they, you know, they don't generate, they don't need as much heating and cooling and they don't use as much fossil fuel moving around. So so um, that we need to understand that actually urbanism per se isn't a bad thing. We need to create sustainable urbanism, which I think largely means we have to electrify every system we have, including the mobility system and, use, and, and source electricity from renewable sources. And that's what we have to do. We have to recognise that and get on a pathway to doing that so that we do reduce our carbon emissions in cities, which is where there are a lot of carbon emissions because that's where the people are. Thanks, Lucy. Richard, what would be the the one thing you'd hope to see come out of COP? Uh, Well, I'd hope to see Australia go to the table with net zero, a formal uh, commitment. I'd like to see countries en masse do their best to bring forward existing commitments so we're not... We're not having all the action, ha- you know, happen in 2049, you know. Bring it bring it forward if we can. Uh, and lastly, I'd make that point about pricing again. I, I, I think um, I'd like to see, you know, uh, further acknowledgement of, of the value of getting prices right. Right. Um, thank you so much, Richard and Lucy. I'm, I'm struck by the conversation, not only that we face a lot of challenges, but actually there are enormous opportunities to build a more sustainable cities and um, make our quality of life, whether that's in Asia or in Australia, better by those actions. So certainly I think 
a sustainable city is at the heart of a sustainable challenge for Australia and the region, but also for the world. So thank you so much for, for joining us. We really appreciate you talking to us today. That was episode three of the Goodwill Hunters Spring Series. Join us next week as we speak to Andrew Twiggy Forrest, CEO of the Fortescue Metals Group and chairman and co-founder of the Mindaroo Foundation. You'll hear us talk about Fortescue's investment in world-leading technological innovations in renewable energy. And remember, you can join the conversation via at GoodwillPod or hashtag Regenerate Australia. We'll see you next week.